The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am very honoured today to be joined by Professor John Mearsheimer, who is a very distinguished international relations scholar at the University of Chicago. And we're going to be talking about America's role in Ukraine. John, could I start by asking about something that's in the news today a bit uh, in Britain, which is Boris Johnson's glory tour of America, if you like, at the moment, where he has uh, made quite a few statements on Ukraine. He seems to see his role now as a kind of global ambassador for the war effort in Ukraine. And he's been trying to to buck up, to G up the Americans, the Republican Party in particular, to be more uh, hawkish about sending weapons to Ukraine. And he's also said that uh, he's downplayed fears about whether uh, Vladimir Putin would use nuclear weapons. And he has uh, encouraged and said that actually now the the, the, the reasons not for Ukraine not to be admitted into NATO are now uh, obviated. I'd like, first of all, to have your reaction to that. Well, I think what's going on here is that uh, the balance of power on the battlefield has changed. And whereas in the summer and in the fall, it looked like the Ukrainians might win the war, it's now quite clear that the Russians are on the march. And when you look forward as to what the balance will look like six months from now. It looks like the Russians will be even in a better position. And I think that people like Boris Johnson, who are deeply invested in this war because they were present at the creation, have a vested interest in doing everything they can to rescue the situation. So he and a number of other people, uh, individuals like Michael McFall, for example, who's also deeply invested in this war, are ramping up their rhetoric about the need uh, to give the Ukrainians more and more and not to worry about escalation and to think about, think about bringing them into NATO immediately and so forth and so on. So I think it's pretty straightforward what is motivating Johnson uh, to you know, ramp up the rhetoric at this point in time. Let's talk about what those victories uh, for the Ukraine towards the end of last year. I mean, clearly there was a lot of, uh, they got a lot of publicity. There was a lot of excitement in the West about them. But what Russian voices were saying was that they were insignificant and actually sort of overhyped. Clearly, both sides have an agenda there. What was your understanding of what's going on and, and looking now at what's happening, particularly in the South and Russia's counteroffensives? Well, I would make two points about the successes that the Ukrainians had, uh, first in in the Kharkiv region and then in the Kherson region. Uh, What was going on here is that the Russians were overextended. 
the Russians went into Ukraine with a very small force. You know, there's this widespread belief that they were bent on conquering all of Ukraine and making it part of Russia. Uh, that's a fairy tale. They went in with a small force. They were successful at conquering a lot of territory, but they didn't have enough forces to hold on to that territory. So they basically withdrew or left very weak forces in those two regions, and the Ukrainians capitalized on that. But the Ukrainians did not engage in really intense combat with the Russians to win back that territory. The Russians more or less just let them have it. The second thing is there was fighting in both cases, both in Kharkiv and in Kherson. And in that fighting, the Ukrainians suffered great casualties. So in winning those two pieces of territory back, the Ukrainians suffered substantial casualties, right? And now you have a situation where the Russians are in a position where they can defend the territory they control. And given their mobilization, and given the fact that they have a great advantage in artillery, which is really the weapon that matters the most here, they're now beginning to roll forward. They're beginning to, to march uh, westward. And the Ukrainians are in deep trouble, in large part, because they don't have enough artillery, but also because the manpower advantage ultimately favors the Russians over the Ukrainians, because the population size of those two countries greatly favors the Russians. So I don't want to say that those were meaningless victories on the part of the Ukrainians, but they were not all they were hyped up to be. And now the Ukrainians are in a quite uh, bad situation. And this, again, gets back to our discussion of Boris Johnson, why he and others are uh, acting as cheerleaders for the Ukrainians. Can we go back to the initial invasion? Uh, because we're coming up to the anniversary of it. We, we did a cover piece on it in The Spectators this week. I take your point that it's probably a fancy to think that Putin wanted to take over all of Ukraine. Nevertheless, the special operation was more significant than a lot of neutrals, let's say, thought that it would be, and they attacked Kiev. Uh, a tank column went towards Kiev. What do you think was the thinking there? Do, was it that they thought that the regime would collapse and, and that they could install their own puppet government? W why did they make such a substantial advance towards Kiev? Or Kiev? Well, I believe that what the Russians were doing since early 2021 was engaging in a coercive strategy. Joe Biden moved into the White House in January of 2021, and he was a super hawk on Ukraine. Zelensky flipped his view on Russia and settling with the Russians, and he flipped his view on NATO membership for Ukraine. So Zelensky and Biden, working together, began to push harder and harder over the course of 2021 to arm up the Ukrainians and to bring Ukraine into NATO. And I could lay out the evidence for this. Now, what did the Russians do? As you surely remember, the Russians mobilized their army over the course of 2021. They started in February and the large mobilizations began in April of 2021. And they were threatening to invade Ukraine over the course of 2021. This was a coercive strategy 
designed to get Ukraine to give up its ambition to become a member of NATO. And it was designed to get the Americans to give up on that mission and instead to accept a neutral Ukraine. And by the way, this culminates in the December 17th, 2021 letters that the Russians sent to NATO and to President Biden. And they're basically demanding that the United States not bring Ukraine into NATO. Okay, it's a coercive strategy. It fails because Secretary of State Blinken says in January, unacceptable. The Russians invade on February 24th. And this gets to the heart of your question, Freddie. What was going on? What the Russians were interested in doing was, again, trying to coerce the Ukrainians and the Americans into accepting a neutral Ukraine. And they did not have enough forces to conquer Ukraine, nor did they have enough forces to conquer Kiev. They had a very small force. This limited military operation was designed to coerce the Ukrainians and the uh, Americans again. And you remember that the Ukrainians and the Russians were negotiating in Istanbul in March, immediately after the invasion. And it looked at that point in time like the coercion strategy that the Russians were employing was going to work because the discussions in Istanbul, if you go back and look at what they were talking about, were all about Ukrainian neutrality. This has been the issue from the beginning. Those talks broke down and the war escalated. And today we have a war where nobody's really talking about a neutral Ukraine. Both sides are duking it out on the battlefield. But my answer to your specific question is, I don't think they were interested in going into Kiev, and I don't think they were interested in toppling the government. If that happened, they could live with it for sure. What they wanted was the government in Kiev and the Americans to agree to a neutral Ukraine. It was a coercion strategy, and it failed. Is that, is that why you think that the, the long line of tanks stopped outside Kiev for as long as they did? They were just parked there as, as a threat? Is a threat. It wasn't that there were problems with the supply line or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you would need many hundreds of thousands of troops to take a city like Kiev. Yeah. I mean, as everybody knows, there's a big difference between combat, urban combat, and fighting out on an open plain. And uh, if you go into a city like Kiev, which is going to be well defended, especially by civilians who are armed with various weapons, uh, you're going to suffer enormous casualties. And the Russians just didn't have the forces to pull that off. You are sceptical, unless I've been misreading you. You're sceptical about interpretations that Vladimir Putin harbours imperialistic designs on Eastern Europe and that he has a great a vision of greater Russia. Are you not? Yeah. I mean, I've learned over the years because I've been in a great deal of intellectual combat not to make categorical statements. Uh, but I'm going to make a categorical statement uh, regarding this issue. There is no evidence that he was interested in conquering Ukraine and incorporating it into Russia as part of an imperialist enterprise. 
There is no evidence that he was interested in creating a greater Russia uh, or recreating the Soviet Union. There is an abundance of evidence that this was all about preventing Ukraine from becoming a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. And if you ask proponents of the view that Putin was an imperialist and he was interested in conquering Ukraine, the only document that they point to as evidence is his famous July 12th, 2021 article that he wrote. And if you look at that article carefully, there is no evidence in it that he's talking about conquering Ukraine, none. And in fact, what you find is that he clearly recognizes Ukrainian nationalism. After all, the memo is written in the context of the civil war that's then taking place in the Donbass, where Ukrainians uh, are killing Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, and Russian speakers and ethnic, ethnic Russians are killing Ukrainians. It's all taking place in the Donbass. So he's fully aware of the power of Ukrainian nationalism. He fully recognizes that Ukraine is an independent state. This is in the article. And he says at the very end of the article that what Ukraine becomes is up to the Ukrainian people. He doesn't say he's interested in conquering Ukraine. And certainly given the civil war that's taking place in the Donbass, he would have been nuts to think that he could have gone in there and conquered that country with ease. But people talk about that essay and they talk about Putin's nationalist turn uh, and I mean there is I've read that essay there is some truth in the idea that he is talking about uh, to my mind it felt like he's talking about Ukraine as some Brits might talk about Scotland you know it's sort of an affectionate we are we are a brotherhood of peoples but we, we belong together but why is he saying that he is saying that because he is trying to shut down the war in the Donbass it's very important to understand that the biggest supporter of the Minsk One and Minsk Two agreements was Vladimir Putin. He was working overtime to make Minsk work. Why was that the case? Because he wanted to shut down the civil war. He wanted to get out of eastern Ukraine and leave Ukraine to itself. He's got enough problems at home. So this article that he writes where he talks about Ukrainians and Russians having this common heritage and really being one people is all aimed at telling Ukrainians and Russians, but mainly Ukrainians, that they should settle the Donbass conflict and they should not be killing each other because they have this common heritage. But the idea that he says they have a common heritage because he's laying the groundwork for conquering Ukraine uh, is, in my opinion, a bizarre argument. Yeah. And uh, But nevertheless, people continue to make it. And it's obvious why they continue to make this argument. They want to be able to blame Vladimir Putin for the conflict. And you do that by saying that he's an imperialist. It was an unprovoked war. You know the whole argument. Yes. I mean, he did provoke this escalation of the war. There's no denying that. There's no question that he invaded Ukraine on February 24th. Mm. And he is responsible for how the war is waged. There's no question about that. My argument is that it was a war of self-defense, that 
Putin invaded in large part because NATO moved up into Ukraine or was in the process of moving up into Ukraine. It's analogous to what happened in 1950 when we crossed the 38th parallel uh, in Korea and we started moving towards the Yalu River. And as you know, the Yalu River is the border between China and North Korea. And we, when we cross the 38th parallel and enter North Korea and start heading towards the Yalu or heading towards the Chinese border, the Chinese told us in no uncertain terms, this is not going to happen. And if you continue to march up towards the Yalu River, we're going to come in with many troops. And what happened was we ignored them and we continued marching towards the Yalu River. The Chinese came in and from 1950 until 1953, the United States fought a major war, not against North Korea, but against China. And the same logic underpinned that conflict that underpins the conflict that is taking place today in Ukraine. The fact is the Russians made it unequivocally clear, unequivocally clear, and many people in the West realized this, that moving NATO into Ukraine was, to put it in Angela Merkel's terms, effectively declaring war on Russia. But what uh, someone like Boris Johnson would say is that why would we play to Russia's paranoia? Why would why would the West direct its strategy towards Russia's paranoia? Because Russia's paranoia is about being invaded. And we don't seriously think that that the West wants to invade Russia. Possibly there's a strategic aim to break it up. But are we not just accepting Putin's paranoia or the Russian elite's paranoia about invasion as uh, geostrategic reality? Two points. One is, I wouldn't call it paranoia. I think that the Russians, and it was not, very important to understand, it was not just Putin. It was the Russian foreign policy establishment viewed NATO moving into Ukraine as an existential threat. It was an existential threat. That was their view. The question is, and this gets to the second point, the question is, how do you, if you're Boris Johnson or you, Freddie, or me, how do we think about dealing with Russia, given that they view NATO expansion into Ukraine as a mortal threat and that it is highly likely to lead to a war, right? My view is that you respect the fact that they view this as an existential threat, and you stay out of Ukraine. Uh, Just the way we stayed out of Hungary in 1956, would you have been in favor of invading Eastern Europe in 1956 because the Soviets went into Hungary? No, you wouldn't have. Would you have been interested in invading Czechoslovakia in 1968 when the Soviets went in there? No. And the reason is you would have respected Soviet military power. And furthermore, you would have understood the consequences of starting a major war in the heart of Europe in either 1956 or 1968, right? We live in a world where there are limits to what you can do. That's unfortunate. You know, we Americans wish we could do everything, but you can't do everything. There are limits. And here, you know, there are just real limits. And we thought, I believe we thought We could shove NATO expansion into Ukraine down the Russians' throat. 
we shoved the first tranche of NATO expansion in 1999. This is when we brought Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic in. We shoved it down the Russians' throat. They were adamantly opposed to that first expansion, but they had no choice but to accept it. And then in 2004, we we basically shoved the second tranche down their throat. This is when we brought in the Baltic states, Romania, Slovenia, so forth and so on. And then we decided in April of 2008 at the Bucharest summit, uh, the NATO summit in Bucharest, that uh, we were going to bring Ukraine in and we were going to bring Georgia in as well. And the Russians made it clear that the third tranche was not going to happen. But nevertheless, we continue. And we continue up to this day. Just listen to Boris Johnson's rhetoric to believe that we can force this down the Russians' throat. The problem is the Russians said that's not going to happen and we'll fight over that. And by the way, you know, it was April 2008 when we said at Bucharest that both Georgia and Ukraine would be brought into NATO. There was a war in August 2008 over Georgia on this very issue. And then the crisis broke out over Ukraine on February 22nd, 2014. And then eight years later, on February 24th, 2022, you got a major war that's now ongoing in Ukraine. So the problem is that the third tranche of NATO expansion was a bridge too far. But I mean, I agree that it was said, it was certainly part of rhetoric, but how real was the talk of the third tranche of NATO expansion? I mean, how right was Russia to regard it as a credible threat or was it just said, I mean, going back to 2014, people like Big and New Brzezinski were saying nobody should be talking about uh, NATO, Ukraine as a member of NATO. And that was still true of very hawkish, uh, very anti-Russian figures up until quite recently, really, and still among some of them now. Um, how, how much was it a real proposition? I think Brzezinski was in large part an outlier. And uh, I think if you look at government policy of every administration since the George W. Bush administration, uh, you see that we doubled down at, at every turn. Uh, and uh, no U.S. government has ever said there's going to be no expansion into Ukraine. They've never said that. And in fact, as I said to you before, the Biden administration has been especially aggressive on this issue. If you go to the Brussels summit, the NATO Brussels summit in the summer of 2021, we made it perfectly clear that NATO was still deeply committed to bringing Ukraine into the alliance. That was explicitly stated at Brussels. And then on November 10th of that year, this is 2021, uh, the United States and the Ukrainian governments issued a strategic concept statement that made it unequivocally clear that the Americans and the Europeans remain committed to bringing Ukraine into NATO. And as I have said on countless occasions, if you look at what we were doing in terms of training the Ukrainians, arming the Ukrainians, involving them in their training operations, we, in effect, had made them, by the time the war broke out, a de facto member of NATO. They were a de facto member of NATO. So the Russians had all sorts of reasons to be very fearful of what was going on. And they made that 
very clear to us, but we ignored them because, again, I believe we thought we could shove NATO expansion down their throat. Well, explain for us a little bit the American mindset here, because I think it's a lot of Europeans don't quite have a grasp of it. I certainly don't. Uh, I, I mean, why has American foreign policy, particularly Democratic, particularly Joe Biden too, why has there been this fixation on Ukraine? Is it a way of just prodding the bear? Is it uh, because there, there is a, a, a sort of Cold War revivalism? What, what, what explains this particular focus on Ukraine? I think it has little to do with the Cold War, and I think it has little to do with Cold War revivalism. I think it goes back to what I call the unipolar moment, which is roughly the period from 1990, 1991, up until about 2017. And what happened during that period when the United States was the unipole is that we adopt a policy of liberal hegemony, which is where we were going to march uh, all over the planet and we were going to turn countries into liberal democracies and we were going to integrate them into the international economy that we had uh, developed uh, over the course of the Cold War. We we're going to integrate them into institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, then the WTO, and so forth and so on. And the Europeans, the West Europeans, especially the British, were on to this. They drank the Kool-Aid. And uh, we developed a policy towards China called engagement, which was designed to turn China into a liberal democracy. Uh, we had the Bush Doctrine, which was all about promoting liberal democracy in the Middle East. And in Europe, what we did was we decided, at, this is all part of liberal democracy. This is post-Cold War. This is the unipolar moment. We decided we were going to move NATO eastward. We had an open door policy. We decided we were going to move the EU eastward. And we decided we were going to promote color revolutions like the Orange Revolution, which were designed to turn those countries in Eastern Europe that were not liberal democracies, not liberal democracies, into pro-Western liberal democracies. We were going to try and make Eastern Europe look like Western Europe. And I would say to you, Freddie, I think we were quite successful up to a certain point. It's, you know, moving the EU and NATO eastward, uh, promoting democracy and so forth and so on. And uh, once we got on that road, it was almost impossible to get off. And that's why every president since George W. Bush has stuck to his guns on the Ukraine issue. It was impossible, I believe, for any American president to get off that road. And Joe Biden, by the way, is the most hawkish of all those presidents on the, on the Ukraine issue. It's very important to understand that during the Obama administration, President Obama assigned the Ukraine portfolio to Joe Biden. So yes. when Joe Biden moved into the White House in January 2021, he was, number one, very familiar with Ukraine. And number two, he was very hawkish on yes. Ukraine. And that's why he and his lieutenants would not cut the Russians any slack over the course of 2021 and early 2022. I don't want to drive you down conspiracy theory alley, but I mean, there is uh, there's a lot of questions about Hunter Biden's business 
dealings in Ukraine, and also now with these uh, documents turning up at uh, Biden's house, and some of them relating to Ukraine. Do you think, I'm not saying that, uh, let's not get into whether sort of Biden was involved in corruption directly or anything like that, but Biden does seem to be particularly sensitive to this subject. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a sore spot in terms of, because in, you know, if we look at Afghanistan, Biden was the one who said, let's end this war, and he took a lot of flack for doing it. And to a certain extent, he was a realist about Afghanistan. But on Ukraine, he has been not actually ultra hawkish, but, but there's a, there seems to be a sort of certain sensitivity there. Could you shed some light on it for us? I actually do not think there is any evidence of corruption on Biden's part regarding Ukraine. I mean, this issue comes up because his son has been involved in all sorts of shenanigans and that cast doubt on President Biden himself. But I don't think that uh, making money or corruption uh, has anything to do with this. Biden is, with the exception of Afghanistan, as you pointed out, he is a remarkably hawkish individual. He, he's one of those people who believes in American power. He believes that American power has hardly any limits. The difference between someone like me as a realist and someone like Joe Biden, who's essentially a neoconservative, is that realists like me believe that power matters greatly, but it has real limits. There are limits to what you can do with military power. For example, when you start to think about doing social engineering at the end of a rifle barrel, I get very nervous because I don't think that's going to work. But I think for people like Joe Biden and his neoconservative buddies, they believe that American power can do wondrous things. We can run around the world and do this and do that. And I believe that when he moved into the White House, he thought that he could get really tough with the Russians over Ukraine and that we would get our way. And not only did you have American power at play, you had European power at play, right? In other words, it was the Americans and the Europeans together who were making it clear to the Russians that if they went to war or used force in uh, Ukraine in any meaningful way, they'd be up against the West. And when I hear that, you know, I, I get very nervous, not because I don't think the West has a lot of power, but I have a healthy sense of the limits of power, I believe. And I think that people like Joe Biden don't have that. They're just super hawkish. And I think that was what was motivating him. And I don't think it had anything to do with him being corrupt and making money or anything like that. I totally see your and accept your argument on the, the unipolar moment. Um, I do wonder sometimes if you're right to say, you often say that America is the train that dr drives this thing. And I can see that point. Uh, but I wonder, in regards to Ukraine, if you look at a country like Poland, say, and their reaction to the invasion of Ukraine, what do you think is going on there? Because that's not just to do with American influence, is it? It's more to do with the fact that Eastern European countries have their own identity. Perhaps it was fostered by America uh, in the sort of unipolar moment. Uh, but they do now have their own identity and they are willing to fight uh, against uh, Russian incursion on it. Then they, they are as, They're as sensitive to it as Russia is the other way. I think there's no question that Poland has a deep-seated interest in worrying about Russian aggression in the future. 
There's just no question about that. All you have to do is look at Polish history. I mean, Poland disappeared from the map between 1795 uh, and 1918. And then we all know what happened between 1918 and 1989 to Poland. So it has had a tragic history, as have the Baltic states. And I fully understand why they're worried about Russia question you have to ask yourself is, are they better off, given the situation now, than if the Russians had not been provoked uh, and put in a situation where they felt they had to go into Ukraine to defend themselves? I think from a Polish point of view, it would have been much better for Ukraine not to be in NATO and for the Poles to just accept that. But I think what's going on here is the Poles... I believe, have a strategy uh, that calls for getting the Americans deeply involved in Ukraine and getting the Americans to defeat the Russians uh, and knock the Russians out of the ranks of the great powers and to have the Americans stay in Eastern Europe, and in particular, Poland. I think the Poles and many Europeans were worried that with the rise of China and the whole concept of a pivot to Asia, the United States would not simply pivot to Asia, it would pivot out of Europe. And the Ukraine war is certainly preventing us from fully pivoting to Asia. And we are getting deeper and deeper into the mud in Ukraine. And I believe from a Polish point of view, this is a good thing because the Americans are then committed to Eastern Europe and committed to defending Poland. And the reason that the Poles are so hawkish on Ukraine and want to defeat the Russians in Ukraine so badly is they want to knock the Russians out of the ranks of the great powers and greatly reduce any possible threat that Russia might present to Poland. I think that is their basic strategy. But from America's point of view, uh, I mean, there are geostrategic advantages to this war. If, you know, the, the end of the Nord Stream pipelines, the severing of the relationship between Germany and Russia, that would bring Europe more closely under America's sphere of influence, would it not? I disagree with that completely. I think, Freddie, we have one country on the planet that is a serious threat to us, and that's China. It's a peer competitor, and the United States should be focusing laser-like on dealing with China. Now, we live in a multipolar world. There are three great powers on the planet, the United States, China, and Russia. If you're in a world where there are three great powers, and you're the United States, and China is your principal rival, the question is, how do you think about the Russians? What you want is you want the Russians to be on your side of the ledger. You want the Russians as allies. The Russians are no threat to conquer Europe. The Russians are a weak great power. Of those three great powers, the Russians are the weakest. You want the Russians on your side, and you certainly do not want to be pinned down in a war in Eastern Europe, which is preventing you from pivoting fully to East Asia. We have created a situation that works to China's advantage. China, in my opinion, has a deep-seated interest in keeping this war going for as long as possible because it pins the Americans down. 
right? The Americans, as you know, have limited bandwidth. Any great power has limited bandwidth. So we don't have much time to spend thinking about what to do in East Asia with the China threat, with regard to the China threat, because we spend most of our time thinking about what to do in Eastern Europe or in Ukraine. This is mana from heaven for the Chinese. So this is a remarkably foolish policy from a geostrategic point of view for the United States. Well, I was going to ask about China next, because certainly Russia's understanding of it is that we have moved into this multipolar universe, as you suggest, uh, and that uh, they are on the side of not the, the Western majority, but what they care about most for the future, which is what they call the world majority, which is China, uh, possibly Brazil, India, uh, countries that are sort of officially neutral, but probably sort of on their side, Turkey, perhaps. Um, is is Russia right to think that it can come out well in terms of the world majority of this conflict? Well, I think it will do quite well, uh, despite ostracism from the West or despite Western sanctions. It'll do quite well. Uh, I think from a Russian point of view, they would much rather have good relations with Western Europe. They'd love to have good relations with Germany and for Nord Stream to be working uh, and to have good relations with the Americans. The, the present situation is not in Russia's interests. The question that's on the table is how badly can the West hurt Russia? Uh, in other words, can Russia, you know, beat the sanctions by uh, forming a closer uh, uh, relationship with countries like China and India and South Africa and Brazil and Argentina and so forth and so on. And the truth is, up to this point, the Russians have done quite well. I think that most people in the West are shocked at how well the Russians have withstood the sanctions. Uh, and I think that, you know, the pro-sanction people are reduced to making the argument that just give it time and eventually this will work and the Russians will be brought to their knees. Uh, maybe that will happen, who knows? But there are lots of smart people who say that that's not going to happen, that Russia is not the sort of country that you can hurt like that. Uh, and that seems to be true from my point of view, but it may be wishful thinking on my part. One of the arguments you hear a lot as to why Russia will not use nuclear weapons is that China wouldn't let it. What do you make of that argument? I think it doesn't matter what the Chinese think. I think if the Russians feel their survival is threatened, they'll use nuclear weapons. Uh, I, I don't think uh, that this is a decision that's going to be affected in any meaningful way uh, by what the Chinese or anybody else thinks. Uh, I mean, I think for any country to use nuclear weapons... Uh, is a step that has huge consequences, huge consequences. And it's, it's a step that I believe a state would only take uh, if it felt like it was, uh, it, it was losing a war that was of an existential nature. And I think that given the fact that the Russians now appear to be on the march in Ukraine means that the possibility that they will use nuclear weapons has been greatly reduced. Uh, I don't see them using nuclear weapons 
to help them win in Ukraine. If on the other hand, we had been, or we are in the future, successful at turning the tide, and the Ukrainians are on the march, and they're heading towards the Russian border and pushing the Russians out of the Donbass and out of Crimea, I think in that circumstances, uh, it is likely that the Russians would turn to using nuclear weapons. And I might add here, Freddie, that I think one reason that's true uh, is because if they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, they really don't have to worry very much about the, about the Americans or the Europeans retaliating with nuclear weapons of their own. In other words, in, in, a, in a certain way, the Russians using nuclear weapons in Ukraine gives them a way of avoiding hitting NATO or American forces and prompting a nuclear retaliation from the United States or a European country like France or Britain. So you so, think they would they'd avoid mutually assured destruction? Right. You avoid, exactly. You avoid mutual assured destruction. Uh, and, and, and by the way, the, Amer the Americans and especially the French, have made it clear that we will not reta retaliate with nuclear weapons against Russia if they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Uh, yes, although I think Biden sort of fumbled it slightly, didn't he? And, and that's... that's I, I well, he yeah, he, yeah, he tends to do that. But Macron has made it very clear that we would not use nuclear weapons. And, and, and basic strategic logic tells you that we wouldn't use nuclear weapons because we don't want to get incinerated. I mean, what we want to avoid... <laughs> is we want to avoid a general thermonuclear war. I wanted to ask you about Biden, actually. And uh, I mean, this is a slightly unpleasant idea, but I, I've, I've thought in the past that there is this sort of, instead of the madman theory of diplomacy, with Biden, you have the possibly senile theory of diplomacy. Because sometimes adversaries don't quite know what he's thinking, the extent to which he's in control. Do you think that can be, in a very perverse way, advantageous on the geostrategic level? How would it be advantageous, though? Because, I mean, because not, he, not... well, let's say he says, uh, yes, we will retaliate with nuclear weapons. And then the White House immediately rolls back and says, no, he didn't mean that. It won't be. No, nobody's quite sure what the strategy is there because there's a, an ambiguity. Yeah. By the way, you see this on Taiwan. Exactly. Right? I was thinking yeah. of that. Yeah. I think he said now four different times that we would defend Taiwan. Mm. And... The White House has walked it back every time. And I always say to myself, is this because he's senile and has forgotten the talking points on Taiwan, or is this carefully calculated to yeah. send a signal to China? Yeah. And the truth is, it's impossible to tell. Look, I'm 75 years old, Freddie, and my memory is still very good, but it is not as good as it used to be. When you get to be 75 years old, you're just not as sharp as you used to be, right? And anybody who denies that is lying to you, as you'll find out when you're 75. Well, I think right? I'm, mine's already fading, so I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe Biden is 80 years old, right? He's got five years on me. And it's clear he is mentally not as sharp as he used to be. But what exactly that means is very difficult to tell from a distance. And he is surrounded by people who watch him like a hawk, right? And, and we know this, by the way, from Ronald Reagan, 
right? Ronald Reagan was in trouble uh, in terms of his mental acuity in the last year or two of his presidency, right? It, it, it just was a, a function of age, right? And it's fully understandable. And, and we know what happened to Woodrow Wilson uh, when he was president. And when that happens, there are, you know, people around the president who watch him very carefully. And uh, so I think, you know, if Biden is having trouble, uh, I think uh, that uh, I think that the handlers around him uh, will take care of that situation. The, the more interesting question is when a president tries to act like he is uh, kind of a madman and he's a risk taker par excellence. And you remember a lot of people made this argument about Richard Nixon and how he helped end the Vietnam War. Uh, and about and the Donald argument Trump with, with Korea. Yeah, Trump too, right. Uh, I mean, Trump gave people the impression that he was a riverboat gambler, right? That he was a wild and crazy guy in some ways. And, and you better be careful with him, right? You don't want to provoke him, right? Uh, and, and, and that was the way a lot of people thought about Nixon. The $64,000 question is whether foreign leaders, especially adversaries who deal with a Nixon or a Trump, are affected by that kind of behavior. Uh, and I, I don't have a good answer to that question. And, of course, I suppose it applies to the way the West thinks about Putin. We don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about Putin is that he's often described as being irrational. And yeah. on other occasions, he's described as being sort of a hyper rational, evil person. Yeah. Uh, and those are those are two views that you cannot hold at the same time. John, I want to end by asking you, you have in your career, you've not been shy of controversy. I think it's fair to say you had your book, The Israel Lobby, which caused a, a bit of controversy. And but have you found that your analysis of the conflict in Ukraine, has that, have you been shocked by the outrage that you've generated, by the attacks that you've generated? Has, has, it, has it shocked you? Yeah, shocked is probably too strong a word. I, I've been surprised that people say I got Ukraine wrong. Uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, I, I uh, said that if in starting in 2014, that if we continued to push to bring Ukraine into NATO, uh, that it would end up with the Russians, in effect, destroying Ukraine, uh, turning it into a dysfunctional rump state. Uh, and that has happened. Uh, I think this is tragic. Uh, it's interesting. I, I sort of get portrayed as being deeply immoral or unethical when it comes to Ukraine. But as you probably know, in 1993, I wrote an article that said Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons because there was a possibility that at some point in the future, uh, Russia would end up uh, thinking about invading Ukraine. And if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, Ukraine would be better off from a deterrence point of view. Uh, and of course, I was probably the only person in the West who made that argument. And most people told me that I was crazy. Uh, and then in 2014, I started arguing uh, that it was a mistake to bring Ukraine into NATO. And 
Ukraine would end up getting wrecked in the process. And all sorts of people attacked me then. And uh, then when the war started, I got portrayed as Putin's apologist. And uh, people said I was providing a moral justification for what Putin was doing and so forth and so on. And all along, what I was trying to do was prevent uh, Ukraine from being destroyed. Uh, I think what's happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrible. And I do believe that if people had listened to me after 2014 and we had given up on trying to bring Ukraine into NATO, that Ukraine would be intact today. And Crimea, indeed, would be part of Ukraine. Because, again, I don't think that Putin was bent on conquering Ukraine and, uh, you know, pursuing some imperial adventure that started in Kiev. I just don't see that. Uh, so I think the fact that people disagreed with me and continued to push uh, NATO expansion is what caused this war. And uh, I, I find it actually perplexing, maybe shocking, that I've ended up being portrayed as the devil incarnate on this issue. Uh, Owen Matthews, uh, who writes for us a lot about Russia and Ukraine, has a cover piece this week. And Owen is a, a big critic of Putin, thinks that it's very against Russia's invasion. But he concludes by saying that he sees no scenario of how this ends at the moment. He sees no scenario in how the war ends without Ukrainians feeling greatly betrayed by the West. Would you share that opinion? Yes. Yes. I think the Ukrainians are going to figure out eventually that they were led down the primrose path by the Americans and their European allies. Uh, and what's going to reinforce this is when this war finally comes to an end, or at least the shooting comes to an end, uh, they're going to find that the West is not going to rebuild what's left of Ukraine uh, in any meaningful way. Uh, this is... This is a tragedy of great proportions. And it makes me sick to my stomach to think that this could have been avoided. Uh, the fact that we uh, continued to try to make Ukraine a Western bulwark uh, on Russia's borders and, and uh, produce this total disaster for Ukraine uh, is, is just, it's really distressing in the extreme. John Mearsheimer, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to listen to you, and uh, I hope you'll come on again. I would like to, and thank you very much for having me on today. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.